Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Lung Yi Cheng, who is Vice President for Cell and Gene Therapy at Amerisource Bergen. Wow, this is quite the episode if you have an interest in the cell and gene therapy space, which I suspect a lot of you, uh, even if it's not an area you spend a lot of time, it is an area that you probably need to have some understanding of, and that's why I think you'll probably enjoy today's episode. And my guest, uh, Lungi, is a really smart guy and uh, very articulate in the way he talks about his background, I uh, really enjoyed hearing his story from Taiwan uh, to the US and the different healthcare systems that he experienced on on the way. And that ultimately led him into uh, his kind of early part of his career in health economics and market access. And uh, we get into an interesting discussion about his view on kind of best practice when it comes to healthcare systems uh, and the kind of advantages and disadvantages they deliver uh, to patients. Um, we then move the conversation on, as you would imagine, uh, to talk about uh, Amerisource Bergen and a huge company that it is and its role in trying to, uh, I suppose, help and support companies in the cell and gene therapy space. And he um, talks at length about some of the kind of infrastructural challenges and access challenges that we have with cell and gene therapy products of which you know there are 13 that he mentions that are now approved uh, and on the market but naturally we get into the discussion around costing and pricing and how that can uh, you know that needs to amend it be amended in the future and he gives a great account of how cost can be brought down which was fascinating to hear uh, and i suppose looking forward into the future you know some guests that we've had on have kind of questioned why everything's going into cgt so we touch on that and uh, you know, he is very, um, I suppose, holistic and then thinking about that is, this isn't the only modality out there, but he's very bold and firm on why he believes it, it, that CGT is the therapy of the future. And then we'll we'll talk about what that future looks like and how uh, access uh, to more patients can be evolved and uh, developing treatments that ultimately will, will help uh, more people all over the world. So certainly one worth listening to for background uh lung e is phd and vp as i mentioned for cell and gene therapy at uh, he leads amerisource bergen's cell and gene therapy service line and in his role he advances uh amerisource bergen's cgt strategy with a focus on expanding the company's portfolio of services to better to support cgt innovators through the commercialization journey before joining uh, Amerisource Bergen, he spent a decade in biopharma, most recently serving as the head of global value and access for cell therapies, pipeline and business development at Takeda. Uh, really interesting conversation, lots to learn and some great insights to take forward. Thanks to you, yes, you, for listening to today's podcast. If you like today's show, then give us a rating on the App Store. It'll take you like five seconds and it will make that day. Come on, that seems like a good bargain. And send me a message when you've done it. and I can send you a lovely smiley face emoji back. Thanks to my team for pulling together the podcast, to Susan, Hannah and Tony and anyone else at my end who's involved in, in pulling this together. 
and making this uh, you know a great episode for you to listen to. Uh, if you haven't already, please pick up a copy of my book, The Founding Founders. Lots of tips in there uh, around you know, linked to the sector that we work in around entrepreneurship as well. Uh, beyond that, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Lungi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure, and I'm really pleased that we're able to do this. I've uh, got lots of questions for you, unsurprisingly, but before we kind of get in to the nuts and bolts of the interview, please give our listener a bit of a, a, a bit of the backstory about you and how you got into the sector and some of the roles that you've had uh, up to up to obviously your your current role today. Yeah, absolutely. I was trained as a pharmacist and health economist. What's interesting, I guess, about my journey is that, first of all, it's hard to separate your personal journey from your professional journey. And in my case, I think what's unique is that one third of my life, uh, I was born and raised in Taiwan until I moved to the U.S. Uh, age 25. The first one third of my life, uh, I was uh, living in this cash market from a healthcare perspective. That was before Taiwan implemented um, universal healthcare uh, in the country. Uh, and that changed in the late 90s. So the second third of my life, I was in this you know, universal healthcare system, uh, very different from before. And then when I moved to the US, um, obviously, you know, free market system, as we call it. Um, so again, a very different model uh, from the other two models that I lived through. Um, so in a way that has uh, shaped um, how I look at healthcare, which is uh, my career, um, and really thinking about value. Um, and that's a big reason as to why I try to combine pharmacy with health economics um, academically. Uh, post school, I started my career, you know, really working as a health economist. And from there, I think what was really intriguing for me, uh, being based in the U.S., is looking at the other healthcare systems um, around the world and how they really value uh, pharmaceuticals uh, along with other um, services and, and products. So that led to my journey. Um, uh, into a more market access driven uh, function. I uh, did that for a couple of years. Um, was really lucky in that I worked on products throughout the product life cycle uh, from a former perspective, uh, launch products, early pipeline, uh, post launch. Um, so really have that good perspective into the whole life cycle of what's needed and some of the opportunities and challenges uh, from a pharma perspective. And then, you know, when it comes to second G therapy, to be very honest, Ramon, uh, this opportunity sort of fell into my lap. Um, at that time I was working for, uh, Takeda, uh, based in Boston. Um, I had an opportunity of working with, you know, these really smart people at Takeda to evaluate, uh, business development opportunities. And one of these opportunities with a hard natural killer cell program um, by MD Anderson uh, based in Houston, the US. Uh, I was part of that team. Uh, Takeda ended up licensing that technology. 
Uh, and at that time, I was really, I was ready to um, do something different. I take on more responsibility, and that's how I ended up leading the market access function for Takeda and cell therapy. Did that for a few years, and then um, this big opportunity at Ambrosius Bergen uh, came knocking on my door, um, and it's really unique in that it is broader than just market access, you know, the role touches on essentially the whole development and commercialization journey um, of cell and gene therapies. And that's what really intrigued me. Um, and that's, that's why I came. Um, I would say my blessing and a curse in a way is that I get very curious about different things and different topics. And every couple of years, I get a bit empty. Um, so in my case, you know, I, I was I was just ready to do something different. I'm really lucky that I came to Amerisol's Bergen. Fantastic, and uh, lots of follow up questions in terms of some of that that journey that you've that you've been on. Uh, firstly, it's it's fantastic to hear that you're you're from Taiwan originally, mainly because I've had the pleasure of visiting, and really enjoyed my time. Um, spending time actually specifically in the pharmaceutical industry as well while i was in taiwan um do you, obviously you moved to the u.s relatively young uh do you ever miss taiwan i presume you still have family there or you very much settled in in boston since since uh, i think you were somewhere before boston as well but i'm very much settled in the u.s now or any any inklings to go back to taiwan at any point in time yeah that's a loaded question ramon <laughs> <laughs> sorry well, my side of the family is still there, and I'm the youngest of four, so I go back at least once a year. So I still have a very strong connection um, with Taiwan. You know, miss a lot of food and, you know, some of the, you know, fun things to do there. Uh, but I'm pretty settled in Boston, so I feel like i kind of the best of both worlds. Um, <laughs> So maybe someday I can stay the winter in Boston to Taiwan and stay the summer in Taiwan to Boston and vice versa. So <laughs> that seems like a really sensible plan. I'm laughing uh, while you're because I'm the youngest of three, and uh, we, you know, we, we moved away from the UK and then moved back, and we're about to move again. And my my mum and the rest of my family's in the UK. And my my mum's constantly like, "Why why can't you just live at home? Why do you always have to live away?" <laughs> and I I can probably feel some some of that that kind of conflict in your voice there when it's you know you're from a big family and you're the youngest and you're, you're the kind of the black sheep that run, <laughs> runs away in the family yeah, which I, I suspect you have uh similar similar things and boston obviously you know somewhere where i've had the pleasure of living in uh, one of the best cities in in the world in my opinion actually is, is one of the best cities probably in the u.s certainly you have obviously spent a, a good chunk of your time at takeda and talk us through what you learned and and you you kind of you went quite quickly over it, but what kind of happened in terms of that kind of transition into the cell and gene therapy space because do my research on you you did look like you were very much in the kind of health economics background and it wasn't an obvious transition that i was expecting but obviously something happened whilst there which allowed you to take the pathway and i'm guessing at the time it wasn't as i suppose evolved as it is now so was there any kind of nervousness on your part to kind of take a jump into that space given us you know I suppose health economics is pretty stable and it's kind of constantly needed whereas i imagine you know 
CGT stuff at the time was probably relatively novel. Um, so just kind of be interesting to hear kind of how that happened and also whether there is any trepidation on your part. Right, that's a really good question. I think one thing I would clarify is that um, by the time I took on cell therapy at Takeda, my focus was being more around market access and less so around health economics. And I think the way I think about it is that market access is needed no matter what modality um, you're working on, cell therapy and gene therapy, to your point, is a very new modality. Um, but ultimately, I think the synergy there is how do you define value? <laughs> and I think if you're a new company thinking about developing and commercializing uh, a cell or gene therapy, that's top of mind, right? So from that perspective, how you think about market access, kind of starting with the end in mind is critical. Um, but this is not to say that there's not other things for you to worry about. Obviously, cell therapy, manufacturing is a big component of that and regulatory. Um, but I think if I think about, you know, sitting at the table, what functions do you need to really make sure that you um, future-proof um, a cell or gene therapy commercialization plan? market access is actually a very important function in that conversation. That makes a lot of sense. So it's a kind of a, a less, so it's from health economics, it's a less of a, a jump. And I suppose at that point, if you're working in market access, you were probably seeing some of the value that could be brought by new modalities uh, in you know, during, during your time at Takeda, which, which I suppose brings me to the question of, you know, what, what actually, before I ask you why you left Takeda, I'll come on to that. You talked about models of healthcare and that you've had the the opportunity to experience, I suppose, different versions of it, both in Taiwan and in the US. And my wife and I, my wife's a, a physician and we've experienced UK and we've experienced the US and we have varying and differing opinions on which is better and which is worse, <laughs> as you can imagine, because, you know, uh, you know, the National Health Service in the UK is fantastic and, you know, it's it's free and although it's funded by taxpayers and gives everyone access to everything, it just can be, it's quite cumbersome and slow versus the US where, you know, obviously for any of our listeners who haven't lived there, if you've got good healthcare cover, you can get access to great healthcare very quickly. But if you don't have healthcare cover, if you're, if you're to have the money, it's a very different uh, game in most parts of the US. So I suppose I'm just curious from your more rounded experience that I've had, what do you see a, a mode or a model of healthcare, either one you've experienced or one elsewhere in the world where you think is a great example for countries to follow that gets, I suppose, gets that balance right for the patient? Yeah, this is a really tough question. And I will tell you, Everybody complains about their own healthcare system. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so, yeah. so true. So true. And um, so obviously, I live in the US and complain about that a lot. Uh, I was just in Europe last week. I went to three different countries, and everybody has something to say. Um, but um, I think what's very clear, and this is probably less relevant for a lot of the your listeners, but I think what's very clear, kind of from my early days in Taiwan and kind of my, my, my teenage years, right, is that insurance really helps um, bring equity to access to healthcare, right? Because when I was growing up and it was very, very little, you know, you don't have 
access to care as easily. Um, that just that's just a simple fact, right? So insurance is good, right? To to kind of um, bring bring better quality of life to citizens. I think we can all agree on that. But now your question around what model works best. Um, I think this is still an ongoing debate. I see different pros and cons. Um, I would say, you know, a national or a nationalized system such as Taiwan's or um, many European countries. Um, I think the, the access and then now we're talking about what do you mean by access? Um, I think, you know, in Taiwan, I'll just kind of use that as an example. Um, you don't have to go through a PCT, so that's different, right, from, from the UK. Um, but what that means is that, yes, you can get to the specialists pretty quickly, but you also don't have the same amount of time that you get to spend with the specialists. Uh, sometimes it feels like a production line. Um, whereas in the first time I came, um, when I went to see a doctor in the U.S., um, just the, the attention that I received, um, it was actually quite surprising to me, even though I was just a poor graduate student back then. Um, I think there is that. At the same time, um, I think you know, the Taiwanese system is hyper-efficient, um, and I think they, they, they are able to provide a lot of value um, to the citizens at a very reasonable cost as part of the GDP. And that's just not the case, um, in the U.S., right? So to me, this is almost a philosophical question. You know, how do you consider healthcare, uh, in the context of your culture, in the context of your, uh, healthcare system, is it a right, is it a privilege? So, um, it's, it, it's a very complex question and I see I can see it from the inside. Yeah that's great to get your perspective on that actually and I think it gives a lot of our listeners some perspective wherever they are in the world when they think about the healthcare that they, there isn't a perfect system and I think given your experience both career-wise and personally um, it's good to get that kind of confirmation. So let's talk about your you know you, you obviously decided to leave uh, Takeda and, and join uh, Amerisource Bergen. You know what 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 attracted you to the organization and the role that you're doing today. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing it must have been a, a big decision to leave together. I know, you know several people that work there. I, I think from memory, I've visited their offices in Boston a few times when I lived there as well. It's a, a you know terrific company to work for from what I understand. So it must have been a great opportunity or, or you know proposition, if you like, to, to attract you. Yeah, so Tegeda is a great company uh, for sure. So, um, Definitely a great place to work at. Um, I think, you know, for for most of us, right, professionally, you're always looking for opportunities to grow yourself. Um, this opportunity that came about from Immersource Bergen was very unique for me, in a way, was a perfect fit for what I was uh, looking for to, to, to grow professionally at that time. Um, and why do I say that? Um, Mercedes Bergen is mostly known, right, as one of the biggest distributors in the U.S. and therefore in the world. 
um, what people sometimes probably don't realize is the diversity and variety of services that this company provides. Um, so as I thought about what's really needed for cell and gene therapy, because I was pretty sure that something, um, I really wanted to invest, um, my, my energy again, and it's just a fascinating area um what Amerisource Bergen can bring to the table if you will is really capabilities and services all along the value chain um you know you start with regulatory logistics distribution patient support obviously market access and many many other service areas for me professionally and personally it provides that exposure and the ability to influence, right? And to help, um, other organizations to be, uh, more prepared in their journey. It's also an opportunity for Marisol Bergen to, to grow even further. So it's really a privilege to be able to help the organization, but also grow myself professionally. You just don't get a lot of these opportunities. Yeah, I can, I can believe that. And it's such a big company, isn't it? I mean, I you know, if you look at the the market cap or just the revenue of the business, it's an absolute giant. I'm a, I remember when I first came up across it, and it's an unusual brand name, right? For anyone that's not from the US, it's like, what does this company do? And you Google it, and you're like, my God, they've got so many employees, and you know, I think two hundred billion dollar, you know, business is is a it's an absolute giant of a business. I believe it's one of the biggest companies in in the US. So, where does so if you Appreciate I'm not asking you to uh, <laughs> that's the the structure of every every part of the business. But where does the uh, cell and gene therapy part of the business like? How does that fit, if you like, into the wider portfolio of of the business? And I suppose I'm guessing this has been a recent development for the business as it's recognised the market opportunity there. Or has it always had, I suppose, a, an innovative side to its business from a, a you know, from a therapeutic perspective? You're exactly right. So something that we're doing that's quite new when it comes to challenging therapy at, at Amerisource Bergen is that we created this, what we call horizontal service line. Um, I think in the pharma jargon, you would think of it as a cross-functional Um, so as I was saying earlier, Amerisource Bergen has a lot to offer to many different businesses within Amerisource Bergen. And I think it is quite easy to focus on your individual business areas. So this is nothing new, no matter where you are. I think with Sanjing therapy, there's really this recognition that we need to be able to work a with more agility and be more collaboratively. And that's why this service line was created. This is why my role was even created, right? So um, we wanted somebody to really rally the troops, if you will, from different parts of the organization and to be able to react and to be able to innovate very quickly with this dedicated team um, so that we can provide value. Uh, for this really, 
I would say highly evolving um, area. It just moves so quickly. Um, so that's why we, we wanted a different business model, if you will, uh, to support this area. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And you talk about collaboration and... I was reading an interesting article on the Financial Times about, you know, the creation, if you like, of this division. And the way you guys talk about it is that kind of uh, collaboration piece and, and introducing novel solutions as part of an ecosystem. And is that ecosystem an internal ecosystem within a Merisource Berg? You know, is this, is this role in this division designed to connect external, uh, I suppose, providers as well to kind of bring a more holistic solution for companies together. Um, if 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 you understand my question, I think I do. But um, if if I'm if I'm off track, just bring me back. Um, um, my primary focus is working with pharmaceutical companies. But you're exactly right in that we need to be able to really understand what's happening in the broader ecosystem. And in that mind, in my mind, that includes patients, obviously, but also providers and payers and pharmaceutical companies. At Amerisource Fergan, we have what we call upstream and downstream customers. So um, in, in, in our world, uh, the downstream customer would include providers. So part of what I do is also uh, making sure that we listen and talk to providers who are actually treating these patients on a daily basis, understand what challenges they have. So it's a very complex web um, of dynamics and um, interdependencies. And that again, I think is another um, advantage that Amerisos Bergen has to be able to reach different parts of the control system and to be able to um, bring um, the feedback and think about what solutions would be helpful um, for for the broader um, audience. Um, you know, a lot of times when we talk to our companies or providers or to patients. They would tell us, can you please um, share some of this feedback with then, then, you know, providers or payers or or companies. But I think, you know, this this really did this this desire um to improve the care delivery on um, the model and we're we're in that position where we can facilitate a lot of those. Thanks a lot, because that makes a lot of sense to me i can kind of visualize the way it all works and let's talk i suppose about challenging therapies kind of a broader level and some of the conversations i've had recently on on the podcast with various guests have indicated that you know a huge amount of focus particularly of investment dollars of private equity of the markets has gone into challenging therapy and I say products, I also mean obviously services, supply chain and everything that sits behind getting those products to market. Would you say there's been an over-investment or over-focus on 
the unchallenging therapy product or, or do you firmly believe that the market opportunity that is there uh, you know and I, and I believe we are seeing more approvals all the time particularly in the US but elsewhere as well do you see the opportunity kind of outweighs the kind of investment and focus that's gone on to the onto the market almost this sense of you know it's not you know it, it's been seen as real kind of a, a magic bullet for the sector and able to add value to patients in a completely different way and um, but others have kind of maybe said well it's not the answer you know it's not the cure for all ills um if you pardon the pun what what's your take on on that and obviously appreciate the fact that you have a very kind of day-to-day role in this space and i'm asking yes so to me it's very clear cell and gene therapy is the therapy of the future that's not to say that cell or gene therapy will be the only therapy for um, a lot of diseases we still need small molecules we still need biologics and other new technologies but it is very clear that cell and gene therapy is here right so right now uh, in the u.s there's 13 gene or 13 approved gene therapies and gene modified cell therapies so it is here Patients are being treated. If you uh, spend time in the civil therapy space, I think one of the most famous patients is Emily Whitehead. She just celebrated her 10-year anniversary um, of uh, you know being treated with CAR-T. So there's a lot of real-life examples out there. I think, Ramon, what you may have heard around this marketplace is maybe overvaluation of some companies, right? I, I think we need to be clear about what, what is overinvestment and what's overvaluation. Um, I don't know if there is ever a scenario where we would overinvest in like changing therapies. I think it's actually a good thing, right? There's enough dollars behind finding new technologies and new breakthroughs. Um, I think the valuation then is a different question. And obviously, me and you being based in the US, I saw how the stock market <laughs> dropped last year. And I think the biotech sector, especially, uh, took a bigger hit. So I, I wouldn't disagree in that there's probably some reshuffling, right, around. Um, is there really value in certain technology or certain company? I think that's kind of what we are seeing right now. Kind of that re-baselining of the value and the valuation um, of the company. So that's kind of how I think about it. That's great, actually. And I think I think you make a very balanced view. And I love, right, I suppose, the boldness of what you said at the start, uh, Lungi, in terms of, you know, I suppose you know, these therapies are the future and you know the, the approval the, the product approval on the market at the minute is almost the initial validation of a bit of a change in the types of products that are coming onto the market as you look ahead into the future if you and i are having this conversation in five years time hopefully over a couple of drinks in uh somewhere you know in at seaport in boston or something like that some nice nice part um what do you what do you envisage Salinger therapies doing in that time period in terms of you know more product approvals, different therapeutic areas. Will this become 
a more norm, if you like, rather than the novel type of drug products that they they are almost um, kind of painted a picture with today. Do you think these will become standardized types of products that we just see all over the world on a daily basis? The dreaded crystal ball question. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there, Ramon. So that's probably maybe the US and EU, UK and Japan, kind of the developed market. Because <laughs> I, I do think there's a much bigger question around access to the rest of the world. I was very, <laughs> it's a great point. The one thing I do want you to touch on at the minute is access and cost, because I'm saving that special question for you <laughs> after <laughs> after this one. So thank you. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of, let's. I think let's focus on the markets that you know well in terms of the kind of, if you like, the, the westernized or the more developed markets where these products are already seeing fruition. Uh, you know, what is what does that look like, say, in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. So let's start there. So I think five years, I think we'll see allogenic cell therapy come to fruition. You know, the first one was approved in the EU last year. The same drug will likely get approval in the US this year. So so that that's starting to happen. Autologous cell therapy, I think, will continue to evolve. You know, it, it's got you know, clear benefits to patients. There's a lot of developments that are being made to improve the processes around manufacturing. How do you shorten the bane to bane time? So I think that's going to continue to evolve. Gene therapy, again, we've got a few approvals on the market already. Um, I think people are looking at using different delivery systems, uh, different viral vectors. So I see that continue to uh, evolve and improve as well. I think the biggest question in my mind in five years, uh, five years is, are we going to see cell uh, and gene therapies being used in bigger populations? I think that's kind of what you were um, alluding to. On it. Because right now, you could say that the approved therapies and a lot of the phase three trials are still focused on rare diseases or ultra rare conditions. Some of them are in what I would call ultra ultra rare, where you had just a few hundred patients around the world a year. So that's that's clearly what the market looks like right now. But there's a lot of development activities and using cell and gene therapies in much broader populations with higher prevalence rates. I think that's going to be what's really interesting, um, I guess, from a business planning perspective, but from a societal perspective, um, you know, how do you, how do you bring these innovations to more patients, even in now the rich countries i think that's that's going to be something that many of us will debate uh for the years to come thanks for that as well i think it's um i think the way you described it makes makes a lot of sense and is a very optimistic view actually we're kind of to a balance between realism and optimism in terms of where where we could see the future and it brings me i suppose on to the cost and access question because this is one of the things um, I think I've mentioned on a previous podcast where I've seen speakers at events talk about the need to bring the cost of these products down in terms of you know the cost to patient, which are often being 
picked up by you know insurers or in nationalized service providers uh, you know even in the uk i've seen a huge amount of press around you know does the nhs pick up the tab for something that costs you know half a million dollars per patient and it's a really it's a really prickly thorny <laughs> tricky issue to try and resolve and you know i appreciate i'm not asking you to solve the issue but if i look at it from the perspective of Amerisource Bergen, you guys are one of the most well-respected and innovative businesses in, in the US and have huge resources and great expertise, obviously, with people like yourself within the business. Do you guys see it as a risk? You know, did you guys take it on almost as a responsibility to help clients bring the cost down? Or is that a is that not necessarily something that sits with you and it's something the whole industry needs to look at because you know, they are fantastic, these therapies, but ultimately we want them to be accessible to more patients and more geographies and, and patients all over the world. But, you know, do you guys take a, a sense of responsibility as, within that as well? Or do you think it's just an industry problem that we need to get our head around? No. So, Emerson's Bourbon is definitely part of the equation here. And this is something that we think about on a daily basis. But before I go there, I think we also need to bifurcate cost of the price, right? So those are actually two different things. Um, but let's start talking about the cost and I think specifically around drug costs. And, and I guess that's kind of what you're thinking about. Well, the bigger discussion around what's the infrastructure, right? Um, cause it's not just the drug cost. So I think, you know, from a cost perspective, there's a lot of things that we are doing. And I think one example I could give is autologous cell therapy, especially um, when you have to move the sample from the patient to the manufacturing facility, then, then bring it back to the hospital for infusion into the patient. There's a lot of different steps involved. Um, and part of our business of uh, Carrier uh, is an expert in that area. So from 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 that angle, we're looking at different solutions, right? Um, that can handle different ranges. Um, think about how can we improve efficiency to bring um a sample or product from point A to point B uh more quickly. Um, to help bring down the cost there. Um, that's that's one example. We're also looking at. Um, what we call cryo storage um, um, solutions to to help with companies that will have a need for that, especially for allergenic cell patients. So we're looking at different ways to bring the cost of goods down, um, if you will. Um, but I think what we need to think about as to think about access uh, on a more global scale. I think the the bigger question is, is the infrastructure. Um, you know, we have the ability to um, a lot of these samples, products around the world, maybe reliably, but I think at the local level, um, it is not necessarily easy, right, to, to use these therapies. So what is you um, kind of go to um, some of these countries, I think the problems are really different. 
Um, and even in you know, countries such as the U.S., right, once you get uh, more and more challenging therapies, uh, the bandwidth, the staff, the the size of the room that you have to store in these different doers, different printers, uh, it becomes a challenge as well. I think there's many different aspects around the infrastructural challenges that that I don't think we talk a lot about, uh, but it's definitely important uh, in the delivery of these and um, life changing. And we talked about you. I think you did a great job of of separating cost and, and price. If you like, and I suppose the pricing argument that I've often faced, or the the kind of the counter argument is, you know, and and you know, our family specifically, you know, we had a had a family member who had leukemia, and um, you know, actually now there is a, a a product, you know, CGT product which is specifically designed for that, you know, to treat that type of leukemia in kids, and um, you know, I saw the and this was pre CGT uh, being on the and. It, you know, therapies being on the market, I saw my uh, the, the level of um, medical attention and care that my family member, my niece, uh, had at the time, and it was fantastic that the when the NHS in the UK really springs into action and, and does some incredible good, and you know she ended up being you know in a remission and, and totally healthy, but the cost of giving my niece that treatment over sustained amount of time was absolutely huge. Um, and so that kind of back to the the argument of price, and which I think is really interesting. If the price is three four hundred thousand dollars to treat a specific patient curatively, is that better than <laughs> or worse than the the current, which is you know the ongoing treatment of patients over years and years and using different aspects and different treatment, and actually collectively the argument is well, you know it's not much cheaper or it's not more expensive. It could be about the same. I don't know if you have a take on that, but that's something that I've, uh, a kind of a counter argument that I've seen to the the pricing of, of how you know, I suppose expensive they are uh, to get these patients into, uh, get these drug products into patients. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really important question. I guess I have a slightly different angle there. I think the bottom line is in my mind, insurance is designed specifically to handle catastrophic events. That's why we have insurance. And I think right now with the patient populations still being relatively small, that the systems are able to absorb that somehow, right? But again, I think the question that that's more important and what she's at that night is what happens when we have these innovations that can treat a lot of age? And I think the question there is, I believe if there's certainty that the companies can, can still um, have a return on their investments, companies will continue to innovate and invest. I think what we may be seeing right now when it comes to pricing or market access, it is the lack of certainty. And I think that's what's really including some of the efforts there. I think, you no, know, you could, you could really drive down the cost of goods to a very low level, um, 
and treat a large population, um, if you know, right, a payer or government is willing to pay for it. And I think you can do, do this in many other countries, including Aaron Africa, if there is that certainty that it will be paid. What we just don't have right now is that certainty, right? And we've seen that all those where you know, companies are trying to uh, get reimbursement for strategies in Europe and uh, it, it wasn't very successful, right? And I think, you know, in Europe, um, if you if you look at it, um, it's not a single market. So when it comes to uh, pharmaceutical reimbursement, I think that's a challenge that a lot of our, our companies face. You are clearly a very thoughtful and smart guy, and I want to probably spend another five hours picking your brain, but I only have a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to finish with a relatively broad question. We've already touched on the kind of future, but I was reading an article that, that you wrote about, I suppose, the demand in evolution of, of cell and gene therapy trials. And I was fascinated to read that China is number two in terms of running cell and gene therapy trials. It's not Despite the obviously the size and power of the nation, it was not expect you know not what I expected to be at number two on that list. Um, and so I suppose linked to that article that you wrote in that insight that you you provided, I suppose you as you look ahead into the future, and what I what I'm understanding for you is you don't see any kind of slowdown or any kind of yeah slowdown is probably the word in terms of the increased investment and focus on these types of therapies in your mind it's only going to increase which again will ultimately be good for patients but also drive value elsewhere in the sector well i think every investment dollar has an alternative and therefore an opportunity cost right so is the argument there that we should just put all our eggs in the cell and gene therapy bus basket and not worry about the other modalities or, or disease areas uh, I don't think that's the case. I think that's uh, how I would think about it. But I think cell and gene therapy being so new, but also the ability to advance so quickly uh, from proof of concept to uh, a natural therapy being infused um, to a patient, um, the, the science is there. I guess selfishly, you know, I, I really would love to see this field evolve even further, you know, with more investments. You know, I think for for any of us who got the opportunity to hear a patient's story and remotely talked about your needs, uh, <laughs> I think the patient benefit is, it is clear. And it's really upon the rest of us to figure out all of these other challenges that we talked about, right? Structure, how do you smart beam with the platforms, pricing, cost, right? So um it's 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 very um early in the way, relatively speaking. Although I do see the bright future uh in cell and gene therapy. And and I suppose to finish off in paraphrasing what you've just said you know you said before what happens when we have a treatment that can treat a lot more patients that's kind of a good problem to that would be a great position to be in right exactly and for me i suppose those are problems worth solving for our sector um 
And with that said, I think that's a great place to end today's conversation and interview. Uh, what a pleasure uh, long to have you as a guest on the show. Um, thank you for your perspective and honesty and openness and I suppose just insights that our listeners can take into their organizations or just into their minds around what's happening in the CGT world uh, from from your perspective. So thanks thanks so much for being a guest on Molecule to Market. Thank you for having me. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.